so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Well, welcome back to Weekly Tech, a podcast of ethics, theology, and philosophy in a technological society. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jeffrey Bilbrow, who's an associate professor of English at Grove City College and the author of a new book entitled Reading the Times, A Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News. In addition to his duties at Grove City College, Dr. Jeffrey Bilbrow is the editor-in-chief of Front Porch Republic. He holds a PhD from Baylor University and has written for numerous organizations, including Christianity Today, First Things, Comet Magazine, and the Gospel Coalition. He's also the author of two other books, Loving God's Wildness, The Christian Roots of Ecological Ethics in American Literature, and Virtues of Renewal, Wendell Berry's Sustainable Forms. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Bilbrow, thank you so much for joining me today on Weekly Tech. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit of the background on why you wanted to write this book and how it came about? Yeah, and just uh, thanks for having me on today. I'm I'm glad to talk with you about this book and these topics. Uh, I guess there's sort of two origin stories. One is the the longer one, and one is you know what this, the straw that broke the camel's back. The longer part is I've been interested in issues of community and technology and media for quite a while. I've written some books on Wendell Berry and community and the importance of place and embodiment. But I've also been another interest of mine, research topic of mine, has been shifting media technologies in 19th century America. So that kind of shows up in this book as I draw on people like Thoreau or, or Frederick Douglass. So I've been doing a lot of research, took a sabbatical project to read a lot on kind of media criticism and 19th century history. And I'm in the middle, actually, of a scholarly book on that subject. But then, you know, my students are, are increasingly struggling with digital technologies. And I, I see this in churches around me. And one of my friends on Twitter, uh, you know, for better or for worse, uh, posted a couple of years ago, uh, said, just sort of had an offhand comment that Christians really need a book on how to engage with and think about the news. And that sort of resonated and sort of made me realize that a lot of this research I've been doing in a more academic vein could be repurposed, could be reframed in a more normative theological key and might be really helpful for the church uh, at large. So we started talking on Twitter about it. And, and then John Boyd, the editor at IVP, jumped in and said, yeah, Jeff, you should do this. So I kind of redirected my attention toward this in the last uh, couple of years, but uh, but it's drawing on things that I've been thinking about and reading about for the better part of a decade. 
Well, as I mentioned right before we jumped on the podcast, I know for me, I got the book and immediately dove in, and I was actually able to finish it in a couple of days because I was really enthralled by it. And you can tell that when you read the book, kind of the history of how it came about. You have a lot of history. You understand kind of these larger concepts in their context, and then how it's shifting and kind of changing and shaping us for good and for ill in many ways today. In the book, you really highlight, especially in kind of the more historical context section, you speak of these two watershed moments with digital technologies in our society. Can you tell us a little bit about those two watershed moments and describe kind of our current tenuous relationship with social media and the news today? Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you picked up on that because it's kind of an aside. But I get this idea of watershed from Yvonne Illich, and he talks about how when industries, in this context, I guess, news and, and books, when industries industrialize, there's often this first watershed where the application of industrial technology makes things so obviously better and, and things are getting, this is amazing and whoa. And then as things further and further industrialize, there's often, a, it seems to be a second watershed where there begins to be these kinds of problems that are endemic to an industrial mode. So now we're, we're actually creating new problems uh, and things are, are going astray in particular ways that weren't problems before. And he looks at a lot of different technologies. You know, he looks at medicine where early scientific advances in medicine obviously made things way better, for which we're very grateful. But then in the last, you know, 50 plus or minus years, there have been new problems, you know, think about things more recently like the opioid crisis or, you know, th these kinds of the difficulty of medical technology and medical bureaucracy and how a lot of times people can't even get the help they need, even though it's available. So in, in the context of this book, what I sort of gestured toward, I guess I can't even say I argue this because I don't really support it, but my hunch is that early on in the early days of the Internet, you know, in the, in the 90s, I guess even the 80s, um, there was this power to connect people and to facilitate the exchange of information and news. And uh, it led to this really vibrant kind of blogging culture in the early aughts and uh, really innovative kind of news format. A and you could access old books in ways you couldn't before. You, know, you, could, you could get old journal articles or out of print books so much easier. And it was incredible. And then around about, and this also led to this incredible optimism about, oh, we're all going to be better informed and get the news we need and democracy will thrive. You saw some of this lingering in the Arab Spring context, right, where Twitter delayed its updates so that the people in, in Egypt and elsewhere could use Twitter to organize. And there was this sense that through social media, we'll have democracies spread around the world and it'll be awesome. Uh, but, you know, my... my Hunches that sometime around 08, 09, as the iPhone and other smartphones get um, introduced and, you know, the, the kind of the power of social media really amplifies that all of a sudden all these new problems become uh, endemic. And uh, yes, we have more information now, more communication, get more news, but also just the flow gets really overwhelming and chaotic and it's hard to sift through what's important, what's not. Uh, you know, so so now there are all these pieces being written about how Facebook is breaking democracy, right? Whereas just less than less than ten years prior, it was saving democracy. So I think it's helpful. I think that framework can be helpful because, and you alluded to this earlier, because it allows us to say that yes, there are some things that are good, and there are some opportunities about these technologies. 
but there are also some real problems. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be sort of naive about either one, but I think it's helpful to kind of look squarely at the pros and the cons. And, and this kind of watershed framework also, I think, helps explain some of the whiplash that we can experience from the optimism of the early internet to the kind of deep pessimism of the present, and maybe think about both optimism and pessimism as only part of the story, and and neither is fully right. It reminds me of a quote of the famous Canadian philosopher George Grant, where he talks about often technology introduces more problems than it solves, and we try to use technology to solve the problems that technology itself brings about. I mean, that's one of the things that I really appreciated about your book is kind of the historical context of how showing this isn't just a a modern day issue, but it actually is something that's much longer, uh, that's much more widespread and pernicious, and how it affects and changes and shapes us. And I know one of the main kind of interlocutors that you interact with in the book is Henry David Thoreau, and he plays a pretty significant role in the discussion about kind of the abundance of news and information and entertainment that shapes us today. I love the quote that you use early on and kind of throughout the book of read not the times, read the eternities. And so you highlight three aspects of what he calls the macadamized mind or this fragmented attention that we all have today. Can you help us to understand what he means by that and how that applies to a lot of the current discussions about social media today? Yeah, and I think, you know, I like Thoreau because he's obviously has never heard of Twitter, but uh, some of the problems that Twitter or the temptations, I guess, that Twitter can introduce aren't new, but they're pretty perennial. So in his context, he's worried about the telegraph and cheap newspapers and the tendency for people to fixate on things that don't really matter and are ephemeral, but kind of brain candy. So he talks, you know, he has this whole metaphor he builds off this road technology, uh, macadamized roads, which I think still lives in our vocabulary in words like tarmac. Now, tarmac is a kind of pavement where you put tar on a macadam road. But it was a relatively new technology in Thoreau's day, and the gist of it is instead of building a roadbed with big rocks at the bottom and then graduating the sizes, you just use small bits, you know, kind of gravel all the way down, and that withstands the freeze-thaw cycle uh, better. But while that might be a great technology for roads, it's not great for intellectual formation, right? And so Thoreau is concerned with the ways that if we attend to little bits of information, we can actually turn our minds into little bits, right? And so we can only attend in fragmented modes and our very minds become reshaped, which recent technology on the plasticity of the brain, I think, uh, confirms what, what Thoreau observed then. And, you know, so there's, yeah, there's a lot of follow-on effects of this. One, I guess, is that we become less able to ask critical questions or even kind of be aware of uh, the agendas behind the slogans and memes and advertisements that politicians or business people or whatever send kind of spinning down the thoroughfares of our minds so that we become passive recipients of packaged language uh, that that is promulgated through these various media technologies. So, you know, that's, that's great if it's a roadway, but it's not great if we as individuals or as communities are unable to think, wait, is that true? You know, is this important? Why, who, well, what are you trying to sell me? But if you just, if you've been formed by these habits of attention, these fragmentary habits of attention, 
then it becomes harder to to ask those kinds of questions. So that's one thing he talked. You know, he also talks about we actually get kind of bloated. I think I reference the phrase that people talk about sometimes uh, binging on a TV show or something. And he talked. You know, he talks about this dietetic metaphor as well that we can kind of almost indigestion, mental indigestion or emotional indigestion from uh, these disordered habits of information consumption. So, you know, it, it might be, it might appeal to our appetite, but then it might make us sick. And uh, I, I think, you know, you get this in the Bible too, with, you know, Paul's exhortation in Philippians to attend to what is true and, and right and noble. So it's not a new concept, but I think in, in these new media contexts, it uh, th- th- this enduring temptation can take new forms. And so recognizing that there are lasting consequences to what we give our attention to might provide us with uh, the kind of prod we need to, to rethink the patterns or the habits of our attention. Yeah, I know in the book, you kind of, you persuasively argue for this idea of a rightly ordered attention to the news. So reorienting our habits and our hearts and our desires towards the good, towards the eternal. And so what do you mean by this rightly oriented attention to the news? And how does that affect or how does the constant newness, I guess, of the information that we receive negatively affect us as human beings? Kind of this fragmented attention that you were already talking to. How does that negatively affecting us and how are we to rightly orient our understanding and approach to the news? Yeah. I mean, it's tough, right? And so I, I'm not going to necessarily give any kind of uh bullets, you know, three points to solving your life uh, with news. But I think we can look at some wise guides, I guess. And so I point to people like like Thoreau, but also like Pascal, Blaise Pascal or um, Thomas Merton, people who I think model a kind of attention that doesn't ignore what's going on around them, you know, that is concerned with what's affecting their society and their neighbors, but doesn't make that the primary kind of ordering principle of their lives. So they're, they're rooted in scripture. They're rooted in what Thoreau calls, as you quoted earlier, the eternities. And then um, they're able to actually have something worthwhile to offer their neighbors, right? So I think the tension is always, how do we stay informed about what's going on around us, stay informed about what's affecting our, our neighbors, but then have something biblical and uh, real to offer in response, whether that be through what we say, or also I think what we do. You know, what's what's our actual response to these events? And if we're just formed by the news and just formed by you know the, that crazy thing we saw on Facebook yesterday, then we won't have much uh, robust to to speak into these concerns of our neighbors. We won't have anything to do. We won't know what to do. We'll kind of fall back on useless performative gestures, maybe on, you know, say something on social media against the outrage of the day. But alternatively, uh, if we are formed by the word of God, and that's kind of where our, the center of our attention has been fixed, then it's more likely that we'll have something redemptive to say and to do in response. So, you know, for instance, in the beginning uh, of one chapter, I turned to Psalm 1 and this image of the blessed man uh, who is like a tree that's rooted and, and draws sustenance and life from the word of God and then is able to offer fruit for the good of his or her neighbors. So I think that's a, an image that's really evocative and helps me think about how, how do I you know, stay rooted in the eternities, but also then bear fruit that meets the needs of my neighbors in this moment. 
Yeah, and taking that larger view of not only history and also kind of scripture and who we are as human beings and how we're approaching not only our relationships in society, but how we go about kind of ordering our society is one of the things that was really helpful. And I really enjoy this quote. I don't always read quotes from people's books because it seems funny to read a quote back to the author. Um, But I thought this was a really salient point. You said, technological progress makes moral and historical progress seem plausible. And I thought that was kind of a big idea. And I wanted to see if you could unpack that a little bit for listeners is what do you mean by this idea of technological progress makes moral and historical progress seem plausible? Because I think that's kind of in many ways the argument we see is that we're undergoing a moral upheaval and this this complete shift and turn away from kind of these traditional forms of not only truth, but morality. And we're we're shifting and changing in our modern society. And so we need to get with the times in many ways, not just read them, but like really change with the times and see this whole kind of shift in our culture. So what do you mean by that? And how can that help us to speak truth into this society that thinks everything is changing kind of based on technical progress? Yeah. Well, one of the, one of my pet peeves, I guess, is people who use phrases like, the arc of history or getting on the right side of history or, um, you know, that's so medieval, it's so retrograde. And they use these kind of chronological markers to stand in for moral judgments, right? And, um, you know, that's always kind of got under my skin. And and as sort of, you know, I've read more and researched more, what I realized was a lot of the, this is not, I tell my students this, uh, nothing that I say that is helpful or true is original to me, right? The things I say that are, uh, original to me are usually foolish. But so this is all coming from people smarter than I am. But what you see is that starting with Hegel and others in sort of 18th century Germany, there's this theory developed of history as kind of progression, right? And just like an individual person goes through developmental stages to become an adult, so human societies are going through these developmental stages to become developed, right? So we still talk about developed nations, developing nations, etc. And of course, there's different spins on that, right? Hegel has one spin, Marx has a different spin, right, that involves a development toward communism. Uh, more recently, people have, have seen this development toward kind of modern liberal democracies. But, but they all share a sort of common view that human history is unfolding in a more or less linear pro- progressive manner. And I think what made Hegel's argument believable and persuasive and sort of, oh yeah, that's possible, is the fact that the industrial revolution was occurring. And since his time, there have been more and more technological developments, right? So when you go to a museum and you see how people, you know, lived uh, 100, 150 years ago, you're like, wow, we have so many more new tools. We must also have, you know, more enlightened, I'm doing quotes, but I guess people can't see those, enlightened views of, you know, all these issues. And this also, then the, the reason this creates the news so much, I think, uh, is that then we go to the news for updates on where is morality today, right? So the new things are somehow like morally superior to the old. They are on the cutting edge of this unfolding morality tale. And again, this can get read in all kinds of different ways. So it's, this is a kind of, an, different people of different political or philosophical stripes can fall into these same habits. So uh, my argument in that section of the book is that we need to recover a sense of dis-ease, uh, of living in between times. You know, you know I, I talk about 
Augustine's City of God, where he talks about our citizenship being in both the city of man and the city of God, and kind of apply that to to this notion of time, that, that we live both in our current historical moment, and we do have to figure out what the kingdom of God looks like now. But the kingdom of God uh, is not defined by this historical moment, right? The kingdom of God is eternal. Uh, who God is, uh, is unchanging. And so uh, we need to sort of figure out what what these characteristics and, and these uh, patterns look like now. And, and I look at, you know, examples, people like the biblical prophets, talk about Dante, others who I think can maybe guide us in this endeavor. But it is really hard. It's hard and uncomfortable to live between two times and, and to kind of make our moral judgments on the basis of the eternities, but then apply them to uh, what's going on right now and not kind of fall into the trap that uh, whatever is new is necessarily more moral or, or developed. Yeah. I know closer towards the end of the book, you start to encourage readers to develop better habits, not only in the ways that we approach the news, but even just the ways that we think and kind of process all of this onslaught of information that we receive each day. And one of the ways you do so, and I love this because it's something we've talked a lot about here on the podcast, and also I was encouraged to see you referencing Jacques Ellul, who's someone we've talked a lot about on this podcast uh, because he's been really prescient in, in my life and helping me think through these things, even though I don't always agree with him on every point. But kind of the value of older books um, in terms of a lot of the contemporary modern issues, because I think we often fall prey to, and you alluded to it earlier, what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. We assume people of the past have no idea what kind of what we're facing today and the challenges, but often their thoughts are helpful for us today because they're not enamored by the newness of today and they can kind of help us see through some of those things. So why is it an important practice for us today to dig into some of these older books and how do you see these older works helping us to understand today's problems, maybe in a clearer or uh, more compelling light? Yeah, amen to that. I mean, I think I mean, hopefully, uh, the very form of the book kind of speaks to that, where I am trying to understand our current technological and so- sociological moment by way of analysis of you know previous moments, whether it be 19th century America or 13th century Italy. Be- because I think sometimes, as C.S. Lewis says this so well, I think it's in that, uh, how is it? Is it the introduction to a work by Athanasius? Uh, could be wrong, but it's in some preface he wrote. Where he talks about, you know, uh, you should read, I think he says, maybe one old book for every two new ones, or he has some ratio. But, you know, he says it's not that the people in the past were any less fallible. Uh, they, ha- they have their blind spots. It's not that they were perfect, but their blind spots were different than ours are. And so, you know, when we just read people from the present, then it's, it's likely that they share your prejudices and they share your blind spots. And so you're never challenged. And, you know, Alan Jacobs, his new book, uh, Breaking Bread of the Dead is great on this. And he has some great examples of, you know, some of the ways these plays out, but we are, you know, we're, we're less likely when we're reading Aristotle, for instance, and he says something about, you know, the intelligence of women. I, I'm, I disagree with Aristotle on that, but I'm not really prone to, I'm not, you know, tempted by that necessarily, that that particular intellectual mistake. But he helps me gain the perspective I need to see the holes in my contemporaries, right? So I think uh, it's really, really helpful when we're confronting 
what seem like new problems to take a step back and think, okay, where have these or versions of them cropped up before? Let's go back and see how previous generations responded to these. And maybe they will help give us the resources we need to address our our present moment. So I think it's very helpful to read contemporary books about the the challenges we face, but uh, also to go back and look at, you know, works of enduring Christian and, and secular wisdom. So outside of the value of old books, obviously, we could talk, we could spend an entire podcast just talking about old books and their influence and how they've shaped and formed us. Maybe what are some other practices that you would encourage leaders to cultivate, especially, and one of the things I love closer to the end of the book is you talk about um, kind of developing these practices in light of the fading nature of online communities and movements, how shallow and how quick they often are, how they fade almost immediately. It's kind of what Postman talks about. And now this, instead of it being every 15 minutes, now it's every two or three seconds. Is there some new movement? There's new some new fad, some new kind of activist movement that we need to be part of. And so that's shifting and changing all the time. But you talk about how we need to really develop thick embodied communities and institutions, because those are the ones that last and that produce that lasting change that we ultimately desire. So maybe what are some other practices that you would encourage listeners to develop, um, knowing that it's not a quick fix, it's not a one, two, three kind of thing, but maybe some practices and virtues that you would think that would be helpful for us in the technological society that we live in today? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And I think, you know, one point is that, yeah, we need to be more aware of the power of institutions. And, and a lot of folks, I'm thinking of uh, Yuval Levin's new book on the institutions, which I can't think of the title right now, but he's got a great book on, you know, the need, as Americans, sometimes we can be so individualistic and, you know, kind of see institutions as burdens. But maybe maybe this is a good time to, to commit to building the kinds of institutions our society needs. So that's that's one point. But in, in the book, you know, a lot of the things I talk about might seem disconnected from the media per se, but I think they are related. So, for instance, I talk about um, if we struggle with fragmented attention, one thing we can do is cultivate a craft uh, because the kind of attention required to bake or to cook a meal or to make something out of wood or to sow or to grow a garden is a very different kind of attention than the sort of passive consumer entertain me attention that we're often fall back into. So that if we can cultivate the kind of careful, responsive attention required to make something, maybe that will form us to be the kind of people who attend that way to our neighbors as well. But, you know, I also think things like taking a walk, going you know, on a walk through our neighborhood or our town and recognizing that the avatars we interact with on social media represent only a fragment of the people that we live with. And maybe if we spent more time, you know, kind of observing the world at three miles an hour and um, being attuned to what's going on in our neighborhoods, we might find ourselves attending to different kinds of news, right? Not just uh, the news of our political tribe that's going on in some distant capital city, but also the the things that are happening in our town that affect our neighbors, to which we're more likely responsible, right? We're more likely able to to work with people at our church or other organizations to to meet those needs or or respond to those issues. So, uh, I think 
finding those kinds of practices that kind of reframe our orientation to the news and the media can be helpful in forming us to be yeah, more Christ-like people. Well, and I think one of the ways that we can do that too is reading a book like yours. Um, obviously, I wanted to have you on the podcast to be able to talk through and kind of introduce listeners to your book called Reading the Times. I really appreciate this book. And I would encourage listeners to grab a copy of it. But as we close our time out together today, what are two or three other resources outside of your own that you would recommend listeners to pick up who might be interested in digging a little bit deeper into how the news and digital media are shaping or forming us today? Yeah, I do think reading books is definitely a good way of kind of slowing down the wavelength uh, of our thought and and digging deeper than we might, even you know, even with a, a long essay in a an online publication. So it's, it's always good. Um, I think I mentioned Jacob's Breaking Bread with the Dead. That's a good new book about old books. I think Andy Crouch, his book, uh, TechWise Family, I've found quite helpful. He has a new book out, which I have not read. Uh, it's not out yet, I guess. A new book coming out on relationships and technology, which I expect will be good. Um, but I guess in keeping with you know old books, I think um, People like Yvonne Illich or um, people like like Thoreau are really helpful in kind of contextualizing these technological problems that we might be facing today. So, so people like Thoreau or Yvonne Illich can help us see how these these forces that were put in place generations ago are now bearing fruit today. You know, so so if we really want to understand what's going on now and the challenges we face, I think we can't only read books uh, or think about kind of the very contemporary problems. If listeners wanted to dig into Illage or Thoreau, is there a work, like one book that you would recommend to start with, especially if they're new to these authors? Yeah, I think Illich's Tools for Conviviality is good. It's short. He talks about the watersheds early on, and that's that's quite good. You know, for Thoreau, I would say Walden's great. But even even that the essay that I cite, uh, Life Without Principle, you can find that. I think it was published initially in The Atlantic, and I think it still exists on The Atlantic website. Although when Thoreau published, it was obviously not online. But, you know, that's a, it's a long essay, but it's uh, quite rich. So, yeah, those would be two places to start. Well, Dr. Bilbrough, thank you so much for joining us here. I really enjoyed this conversation. Obviously, we could keep going um, and talking about these things, but I really appreciate your book, the work that you're doing, and for you taking the time to join us today on Weekly Tech. Well, thank you, Jason, and thanks for the work you're doing to help Christians think more uh, carefully about technology. Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoy Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing, and also they help us to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Bilbrow and learn more about his new book, Reading the Times, as well as the recommended resources he mentioned in the show notes. You can also make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing, which comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.